introducing our speaker today, Carolina Torres. She's an attorney at law with a minor in financial corporate law from the University of De Los Hemophiles. She has over 10 years of experience managing environmental cases in the conservation field. She was um, the lead attorney for the Guapanos National Park Dictorate, um, which is GMPD. G, yeah, GMPD. Um, during her period at GMPD, she managed environmental cases, issues regarding vessel wreckages um, on the San Cristobal Islands, as well as um, environmental cases in the Galapagos. She's a member of the International Transdisciplinary Academy of Environment and the Kinsmanship um, Conservation Fellow cohort 2019. She has been a focal point for international policy matters at the United Nations, um, the Conservation of Biodiversity, and the International Union of Conservation Nature, of Nature, representing island conservation. She has supported the dialogue on synthetic biology and gene drive since 2018. Welcoming and welcoming Caroline Doris. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you, Rudy, for the introduction and your kind words. Uh, I feel very welcome, and thank you, Royden, too, for offering your house and uh, and make us part of of this great uh, group of people. Uh, it's it's I really value that. And good morning, everyone. Um, thank you all for participating in this colloquium. I'm glad to be here to talk to you about my experience at the International Dialogue on Invasive Alien Species and Synthetic Biology and how those two topics uh, have a synergy. And I want to especially thank Don and Jen uh, for making this talk happen. I'm a little bit nervous, so bear with me, please. Um, and uh, and also my dearest friend, uh, I always get very emotional. Sorry for that too, uh, for being a point of inspiration and uh, a supporter of my work through the years that we've known each other. Uh, this talk fits really, really good on uh, this time of the year, Halloween. So you have my friend here representing this day. <laughs> And we're here to discuss a tale that is nothing short of, of terrifying, honestly. Something that we really need to resist and uh, we need to try to stop this monster, however we can. <laughs> okay. Perfect, thank you. So that's extinctions. And we are on the verge of the sixth mass extinction. And I'm going to show you what a near extinction really looks like. This is the Pinzon giant tortoise uh, from the Galapagos. It's endemic to Pinzon Island and was declared extinct in the wild in 1996 by the IUCN. No hatching could survive on the island and park rangers and scientists found an aging population waiting to blink out forever. There are many stories just like this one, all around the world on islands today. And islands represent about 5% of the Earth land mass, with over 100,000 islands, 400,000, sorry. And the human population on islands represents about 11% of world's population. <laughs> 
But very importantly, 75% of birds, amphibians, mammals, and reptiles extinctions since the 1500s have been associated with islands. Islands are epicenters of extinctions. Invasive alien species are one of the five biggest causes of extinctions. In the picture, you can see a blue-footed uh, booby egg devoured by invasive rats. And it is, it is really sad to see this. And there's an IPES report uh, released in 2019 that found that in the coming decades, one million species will be at risk of extinction due to human impact, including pollution, climate change, and the spread of invasive species. Moreover, invasive alien species are a threat to food security and livelihood for the 11% of people that live on islands. And island conservation believe that this issue needs to be elevated. There's a study that highlights that between 1960 and 2020, invasive alien species caused over 1 trillion euros sorry, uh, in damage worldwide. Also, many spread vector bone diseases to other animals and humans. So we have the duty to stop these horror stories. And here is one example. Remember the Pinson giant tortoise that I talked about a few minutes ago? This, this, this species was only alive because for decades park rangers and scientists would go to the island, pick the eggs that managed to survive, take them into captivity and help them hatch there, and then reintroduce them to the island once they were like a rat-proof size, like kind of like a dinner plate. And after the project in 2013 uh, of the Galapagos National Park with the assistance of island conservation is how the islands look like now. I don't know if we have sound. I don't have it, Sharice. Well, you were supposed to hear, like, <laughs> I'm just happy to go with you. So you were. Oh, we have sound. <laughs> It is pretty emotional, and uh, that was my friend Paula Castaño, a um, uh, veterinarian expert uh, on, a, on a native fauna, and uh, you can hear her voice, and she witnessed something that no one has seen in 150 years. Tortoise of Pinson giant, Pinson giant tortoises hatching for the very first time in the wild of 100 and, uh, over 150 years. So what this means is that this species was downlisted from extinct in the wild to vulnerable. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. And this is uh, Palmyra Atoll in the Line Islands. And invasive rats were eating in the native forest seedlings. And, oh my god, I'm not touching anything. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe it's Halloween. Uh, it's the ghost of a 
North Carolina State University coming around? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, invasive rodents were eating the seedlings of native vegetation. And after the removal in 2011 of uh, invasive rodents, the Pinsonia grandis start to thrive in a 5,000% increment. But there are, there are other stories that are not as successful as the one that I just told you. And uh, this is a picture of, uh, that represents a log for island conservation and for many other partners on Midway Atoll that sadly uh, mice have been found still on, on the island. So there's a lot of work involved in this kind of project, a lot of investment and a lot of time. So what we need to do and what we've been doing is innovation. So we need to keep innovating to achieve the goal to prevent extinctions. So this picture, well, I, I tricked it a little bit, to be honest. Like the, the first drone is, is, is not as, <laughs> but I needed, needed you to show you, show you this. Um, so I was telling you that we need to innovate and, and we've been doing that uh, with the use of drones, for example, uh, to scale the pace scope uh, of, of our projects uh, to, to be able to, to, to achieve the goal that basically is prevent extinctions all around the world. And um, we are using also thermal uh, cameras, sensors, to, to be able to, to, what's the name of that? To monitor uh, the, the invasive alien species that we are trying to tackle. But we are also uh, using eDNA samples uh, and, and other, other techniques that, like, I don't remember, that I think it's called a stable isotopes. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you just need to understand that I'm just a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, of course, the use of synthetic biology uh, to explore new tools like the use of gene drive to suppress rodent populations. And here is where invasive alien species and synthetic biology started a synergy. Island conservation uh, is part of the genetic uh, biocontrol of invasive rodents uh, partnership, also known as GBIRT. Uh, that was built to explore genetic technologies that could help us remove invasive uh, rodents from islands in a non-lethal way by using gene drives, which are systems of biases inheritance that enhance the ability to trespass a genetic element uh, of spreads. Gibber partners um, are still investigating the feasibility of gene drive development but also uh, are engaging early with researchers, scientists, regulators, communities, and other stakeholders. And also as part of that early engagement, island conservation become a member of the outreach network for gene drive research. This group um, has many researchers and uh, organizations that are working on gene drive technologies uh, and, uh, and are doing research for public good. So the network's main purpose uh, is to raise awareness uh, of the value of gene drive research for public good again. And other 
type of engagement was also needed. Uh, here is like with the policymakers that drive international, the international conservation agenda. As such, island conservation uh, as an NGO is an observer or become an observer to the Convention of Biological Diversity known as CBD. You're going to hear a lot uh, CBD, <laughs> sorry for that. And, and uh, having issues. Honestly, you guys have a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. And so again, so uh, so I was telling you that island conservation become an observer uh, to the CBD, and also we become a member of the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Uh, concurrently, island conservation uh, participates in the global dialogue on conservation, including invasive alien species and synthetic biology, nurtured by the CBD and the IUCN. As such, island uh, conservation has been engaging at the UN, raising awareness of the importance of the removal of invasive alien species on islands and the need for new tools and innovation, as well as financial mechanisms to do so. Uh, the UN General Assembly, just for you to have a general idea on, on these, like the UN General Assembly provides uh, directions and leadership to member states, but other independent bodies uh, give more specific guidance depending on the topic that we are addressing. Uh, for example, public health, agriculture, climate change, uh, and this is done through different conventions, protocols, and organizations that rule the topic under discussion. These bodies include the World Health, Health, World Health Organization, sorry, uh, the UNDP, the FAO, among others. Um, specifically for the discussions on invasive alien species and synthetic biology as a potential conservation tool, we have been following the UN CBD uh, and its protocols and the importance to notice that the CBD collaborates with the UN uh, conventions and agreements such as the United Nations uh, Framework of UNCCC, Convention of Climate Change, uh, to address complex global environmental challenges uh, collectively. Some CBD uh, member states belong to other international institutions, such as the IUCN. So when we are negotiating, there's a need of harmony between all the agreed uh, decisions in the different international forums. The Convention of Biological Diversity uh, opened for signature in 1992, so more than uh, two decades now and uh, on, at the Earth Summit of Rio de Janeiro, and entered into force in 1993. The CBD is an international treaty uh, for the conservation of biodiversity, the sustainable use of biodiversity, and the equitable sharing of the benefits derived uh, from genetic resources. With 196 parties, uh, it's almost one of the treaties that uh, have more signatories, except two, the US, and the Vatican. <laughs> uh, the CBD seeks to address uh, all threats to biodiversity and ecosystems services through scientific assessments, 
the development of tools, incentives, and uh, different processes, the transfer of technology, and uh, good practices, and the active involvement of the stakeholders, including IPLCs, uh, indigenous peoples and local communities, uh, youth, women, and um, business as well, and obviously NGOs and researchers. And uh, it's important that, uh, to, to know that the signatories of, of this convention uh, and the treaties of it uh, are binded or yeah, are binded by uh, the legal instrument. And I will explain later on a little bit of how that uh, gets incorporated into, into the, the national legislations of each country. And uh, you might be aware, and it was a, a lot of us around uh, uh, the meeting in Montreal in December 2022, uh, that during the COP15, uh, that is like, a, 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 yeah, it's the Kumbing Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework uh, that was approved at that meeting. And that runs uh, the next decade of, uh, of conservation uh, measures that will need to be implemented by the signatory, by the signatory parties. And uh, that framework contains 23 targets and it's commonly known as the post-2020 GBF. And replace the Aichi targets uh, that, that, that were approved in, uh, in Japan in 2010. So, the Aichi targets, uh, 2011, uh, 2020, and then the Kunming Montreal, and that's why it's called the uh, post-2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, that runs uh, the next decade, although we had a COVID situation and it was recently approved in last December. Uh, but two targets are of importance uh, on, on these uh, new GBF. And it's target six on invasive alien species and target and target seventeen on synthetic biology. Um, the CBD uh, began addressing the issue of invasive alien species in 2000 uh, during the COVID held in Nairobi. The, this mark basically a recognition of the significance of invasive alien species as a threat of biodiversity. Since then, the CBD uh, has ongoing discussions uh, that include a development of guidelines, recommendations, and best practices, and sorry, <coughs> for the prevention and management of invasive alien species. It also enhances international cooperation to address this significant conservation challenge. As a result, we have target nine, target Aichi number nine, and now we have target seeds on the closed uh, 2020 GBF. But something that is important here is to highlight that these such as islands. Uh, when we were negotiating, well, I was not negotiating, I, just, I was just like helping address this issue and, and, and uh, one of the main issues is and make make everyone aware why islands are so important. So that's one of the key uh, the key elements that was able to be introduced in the in the framework and that will be driving the next decade. So for you to 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 have an idea of this. And target seventeen um, 
that is on synthetic biology. And the CBD formally recognized synthetic biology as a topic of importance in the, in the, in the context of the, of the convention uh, in 2012. At that COP, the CBD uh, adopted a decision that established an ad hoc technical group uh, on synthetic biology to examine the potential impacts and, uh, and implications on synthetic biology to biodiversity and to provide recommendations uh, of, of the subject. And this marked a significant step uh, on acknowledging the relevance of SimBio. And since then, uh, discussions have been ongoing and uh, there are still ongoing. And, and, uh, and these kind of topics uh, are very, very complex and often involve, uh, over time, an understand, understanding and awareness on the field uh, progress and, and can get very, very technical. And as an example of that, uh, discussions on risk assessment are going, are going now. Um, the other, the other uh, international institution that where we have been engaging is the IUCN. And, and like the engagement is similar to the CBD, although they don't have the same legal implications uh, at the U, like, like the UN and the decisions uh, under the UN uh, framework. The IUCN uh, was created in 1948 and is a membership union uh, composed of both government and civil society. And this is like the, the difference. And it provides public, um, it provides public, private, and non-governmental organizations with a knowledge of tools, uh, with the, yeah, tools and enable human progress and economic de de development uh, and nature conservation. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm going to. And the mission of the IUCN is to influence, encourage, and, um, and uh, assist uh, societies around the world on conservation of nature and ensure that the use of natural resources is equitable and sustainable. Uh, the IUCN plays a role in providing uh, scientific expertise, data, and policy recommendations related to conservation and sustainable development. So it fits in the dialogue of the international uh, general dialogue on conservation. And IUCN is extremely, extremely complex um, in its processes. Sorry, I think I need to blow my nose. Anybody have a tissue? Since, in addition to the member states, uh, there are different voting entities such as NGO, uh, local local government, uh, indigenous communities, uh, and and others. And um, besides 
the inputs that are received are received by over 16,000 experts. So it's a lot of information and a lot of topics that are being discussed at the, at the IUCN. And the discussion on uh, synthetic biology started in 2016. Well, started a little bit earlier, but, uh, but the, the main thing started in 2016 on, uh, on Hawaii, where um, there was a decision, uh, resolution, sorry, that mandate that the development of IUCN policy on biodiversity conservation and synthetic biology. And after that, a task force uh, was created uh, to address this issue, and they developed a document uh, called Genetic Frontiers for Conservation and Assessment on Synthetic Biology and Biodiversity Conservation. And uh, that document, honestly, it's a, a really uh, well-structured document with a lot of information on how synthetic biology can serve as a, as a potential tool for uh, addressing conservation, conservation issues. And uh, in uh, the last World Conservation Congress in Marseille in 2019, where I was there with, uh, with my friend Royden, uh, uh, there, there was a discussion on Resolution 075 on synthetic biology, and it was a very, very complex decision, and a lot of negotiations had to take place there. And basically, that resolution, uh, a mandate, because we didn't got into a very uh, strong agreement on, uh, on, uh, on the policy for synthetic biology, uh, mandate uh, the development of a working group uh, to develop the uh, process for the, oh, the process for the policy on synthetic biology. And I have been recently appointed uh, for that process, uh, two weeks ago, I think. And uh, I'm sure the discussion is going to be very rich. <laughs> <laughs> and there are, other, um, there are other institutions that also fit information into this international dialogue, like the IPES, and I'm just like seeing the time, and uh, I'm, I'm almost over the half an hour that I was given. <laughs> okay, we started late. So we we'll start five more minutes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so all these international dialogue uh, will need to cascade from the international level, like the discussions at the CBD, the agreements and the protocols, then information of the IUCN, the IPES, and other. Uh, UN institutions or international um, uh, organizations to the national level. And that will be implemented in the legislation, in the authorities, then the ministers, and will end up in, local, in the local communities with the frameworks, uh, the governance frameworks, and then basically put, like, in reality, where the projects are going to be made and implemented. And uh, this picture uh, was taken like two weeks ago uh, in Nairobi. Uh, I took that beautiful picture where you can see a bunch of people just sitting for hours and hours <laughs> discussing a coma. But <laughs> so that's basically the role of a, uh, of a, well, it's not a role, it's how those meetings uh, are structured. And uh, 
there's a lot of, of time in invest, investment. Uh, and uh, sometimes it seems that nothing is advancing, but at the same time, everything is advancing. So we need to keep an eye, uh, a very close eye on what is being discussed in, 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 these, uh, in, these, uh, in these meetings. And uh, I just wanted to highlight what's the role of, of an NGO uh, on these kind of meetings. Or people like me that uh, run from uh, one country to another, just going to these meetings and seeing uh, a screen. And uh, we are, like, as an NGO, uh, we are observers. Meaning that we don't have, uh, we do have a voice, but we don't have voting. So what we do is basically we inform the debate and we need to be a reliable source of, uh, of technical information and a guidance to the parties at the CBD or in the IUCN uh, to, the, to the members of the, of the IUCN. Uh, and we need to engage proactively uh, with, uh, with these representatives and deliver clear messages like what we really want to share, like in a very, very simple way. And uh, as island conservation, I can tell you the message. And the message is we need to remove invasive alien species from islands to prevent extinctions. And in order to do that, we need to innovate. And one of the innovations that we are looking is the use of synthetic biology. So that, that's the key message that we need to deliver. And then, like, I'm not an expert at all, so I will go with a bunch of technical people like you to be able to introduce you to the people that really needs to understand further the topic that we are discussing. And uh, expect very, like, if, how many of you have uh, gone to meetings like this one? What do you think about them? <laughs> um, I went as a very, very green observer with no real prior context. Um, I thought it was interesting, but I have a, a strong molecular biology and synthetic biology background, and I was upset by how little detail ended up being or I saw being considered, like obviously a lot is considered behind the scenes, but I was frustrated with that it didn't seem very transparent and that the forefront of the arguments had a lot of like, from my perspective, innuendo, you know, like countries were advocating for specific wording based on, on their priorities and that context wasn't necessarily apparent to, you know, naive viewers. Yeah, and I think, do you all share with that perspective? It's fair. It's fair? No. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a fair uh, assessment of those kinds of meetings, but uh, don't get disappointed and don't get frustrated. That's why there are people like me that love to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, my message here is uh, don't get disappointed because I've heard this disappointment and, and, uh, and frustration uh, from many, many technical people. Because you've been investing so much time on your research and your knowledge is 
high on these aspects. And ours is low or maybe below low. And, and what we need is to have interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary teams going to these meetings to be able to transmit that message. And uh, I'm going to share uh, your frustration in this picture. <laughs> this was at the World Conservation Congress uh, in Marseille, and I was uh, trapped in that room for over 16 hours discussing the resolution 075 on synthetic biology. So, yes, a little, I share a little bit of that frustration with you. But the, the message here is that we need to engage with everyone, like with parties, with other NGOs, and with people that is not always um, um, supportive of the technology that we are doing. And uh, for example, that's a picture in Sharm El Sheikh uh, uh, during COP14. And um, the pink chicken has been follow has followed many of you to different meetings. That was my first uh, interaction with the pink chicken. It was a very a very enlightening discussion. And um, they don't believe on synthetic biology. They don't want the use of synthetic biology. They don't want the use of gene drives. In fact, they believe that it's a, what was it? It's a military weapon. And, and basically something, we end up taking that picture because like I was expressing that what we are doing and, and the technology what we are trying to develop is for like public good. It's for conservation, and we share that message. And once you make a click, probably we won't get into agreements, but at least we were able to transparently and honestly share our message. And we heard them with respect and acknowledgement, although we don't share them, their own, own perspectives. And maybe I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to to change a little bit of, uh, of the scenario now. And I was talking about like how the international cascades down to the local. And this is a picture of uh, the community of Floriana Islands. And uh, as you know, I live in the Galapagos and I've worked for island conservation on the ecological restoration of Floriana Islands. And that project, is not using gene drugs, is not using synthetic biology, it's using traditional tools and the best tools that we have at the moment. And that project took 15 years in planning. And I'm very proud to say this, we are implemented now. So we end up the second uh, baiting uh, application a couple yesterday, I think. And uh, the project wouldn't have been a success if we didn't construct it or co-constructed with the community. And that's why it has taken so much time. So imagine how many uh, time, men, hours, uh, all the technical investment, all the investment in infrastructure, the investment in the technology and the innovation we needed to implement on this project as well. Oh, 
although we are using the, the traditional uh, tools that we have, but this wouldn't have happened if we didn't uh, engage with the community since the beginning. And it took us 15 years. So for synthetic biology and to the use to um, on, uh, on the, um, the on, on invasive alien species uh, removal, we need to engage really, really early. And, and that's what we are doing now. And, and basically, that will translate on signing agreements and implementing the project as we are doing now. So, basically, newer technology uh, may help us in this area, and, uh, but we need really to, to do it, um, how do, to do it more efficiently, I will say. And uh, this kind of technology can propel the restoration island ecosystems uh, through thoughtful and science-based actions. And this will lead us to a brighter future. <laughs> so thank you, thank you so much. That was really interesting. I just want um, to remind everyone online that you're welcome to join in the discussion. Uh, if you would like to ask your question directly, please use the raise your hand function. And Or if you'd like for me to read the question for you, just put it in the chat. Uh, so are there any questions in the room? Thank you for a wonderful presentation and thank you, Royden, for the introduction. So I'm part of CSIRO, who's part of that genetic um, biocontrol of invasive rodents group that um, you mentioned. I too am not a synthetic biology expert, I'm a social scientist and an anthropologist and I, I see the value in bringing these different knowledge systems together. And I really loved how you talked about early engagement and long-term engagement. In my experience working with Torres Strait Islanders in Australia and talking about potential gene drives for island conservation, it's really hard to offer direct benefits. So you're working at two different temporalities. You're working at this sort of long-term regulatory sort of dependent technology with huge potential, but then you're also asking people to give time, advice, thoughts, or resources in the immediate. How do you... Do you have any ideas of how to balance benefit sharing in a more immediate term rather than this larger long-term horizon potential, which could be huge, but it is also not tangible yet? It's an excellent question. It's a hard uh, one. And <laughs> a really, really hard one to answer. Because since we are on the early stage of the development of this technology, it is also difficult to find who our stakeholders are. So uh, for me, it's easier to say, okay, we are going to the international uh, part because we are discussing that kind of, of, of topics there. But for like specific gene drive technology for rodents, we don't have even a site yet. So the engagement, and I think one of the principles that Gbert has uh, for, to address that is to do the projects on uh, countries that have a hard, uh, a robust uh, legal framework like that. Like you've, like you've gave one step farther uh, on on the on the engagement 
because you are already talking with governments that understand that. Once you know like where the technology could be applied, you will need to like do early engagement and also like a lot of teaching. Because like synthetic biology is not easy and it's a very, very complex uh, oh, topic, even for people that are biologists. So translating this to a local community will be a challenge. And uh, I'm sure that the project, uh, the, the, there's no project yet, the, the potential projects will be done in, in uh, places that has no, no communities that surround them, like local communities, probably an uninhabited island could be an option. So it will be easier because like you will be dealing with like uh, national institutions on um, environment, or biosafety, agriculture, probably, and I don't think so. Hope I answer your question. Thank you. Uh, you said that it took 15 years to implement the traditional method in one of the, towards the end. I guess, can you talk about like what that process was like and also, I mean, 15 years is long if you're trying to save it species. Mm -hmm. I guess, can you talk about why it took so long? And of course. So yeah. And it's a, it's, it's a great, <laughs> great question again uh, and a good logic. So. These projects take a lot of time because like we are targeting, like at that specific island that I was talking about, we are targeting two uh, species of rodents and feral cats, okay? But on that island, there are also other species that are called the non-target species. The ones that we don't want to get rid of or we don't want to impact. So the traditional method is the use of toxicants. So if we use toxicants, we will impact other species. And in this particular island, a population of 154 people. So we co-developed the project uh, and the plans of the project, like for example, uh, the water mitigation project, the tourism project, the agricultural pro uh, plan, sorry, talking projects, plan, um, the um, fishery plan, to address every single aspect of the community. And then we have other uh, plans, uh, like the, like the shortage owl plan, uh, the finches uh, mitigation plan, um, the, cat, uh, the domestic animals mitigation plan. So there's a massive amount of people and plans behind this. And then, like for example, to, to, to be able to do the project, you need also to ensure uh, the livelihood of, of, of the Floriana community. So we had to build chicken coops, piggeries, uh, cattle houses. Uh, we needed to create infrastructure around the school so kids uh, are not in contact with the, with the bait. Uh, we needed to like uh, support the government on creating a better dock uh, to be able to unload the containers with the bait. So it is massive, and uh, it that takes time. That 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 takes a lot of financial resources, and probably something that I miss uh, telling in my presentation 
is that if your topic is not in the conservation agenda, probably your projects are not going to be funded enough. So ensuring uh, the, the topics that uh, you care of in that conservation agenda also helps you to find fundings for, for the implementation of the project. What does rollback look like? So if something were to go wrong, what um, things are in place to maybe stop the technology from spreading? On, uh, you're talking about like the traditional methods or like the, bios, uh, the synthetic Most, biology Mostly one? in the planning stage. So what does that discussion look like in the planning stage? Um, if something goes wrong with the technology, how do you roll it back? So you have uh, mitigation plans, a lot of mitigation plans. For example, for the short year owl that we know that uh, those uh, those uh, that the species can be affected by the bait in the traditional method, uh, we have a particular plan to protect them and to ensure the population. So at the moment, we have 64 owls in captivity and we'll have them uh, until the islands is safe for them to go back. So that probably will be around 18 to to, I don't want to say numbers because like, I don't know how, how long it will take uh, for the island to be uh, completely out of, of, of the bait. Um, well, not even the bait, the, the, the toxicant. So you have to think ahead as much as you can. And it always, something can always go wrong, but you need to prepare yourself as a, as the best you can and with the best knowledge that you can. So that's why like a lot of people is in this room and a lot of people are involved in these kind of projects and multidisciplinary teams are needed to think in a different way and also to think out of the box to be able to solve these issues that are pressing uh, the nature that we have at the moment and that at the end uh, create extinction. So the other thing that, that happens here is that we need also to think on the cost of no action. And that's really, really important. Because if we don't invest in innovation, if we don't think about what else what can we do uh, to, to, to address these issues, there's a cost of inaction too. Um, thank you for your talk. This is... A broader question and I know you're an attorney so this may not be squarely within your expertise but in the gene drive space a lot of the conversations are around you know if and when we have them working and are able to release them there's a lot of concern about ongoing monitoring as as part of the post-release management however there's a real concern about the lack of baseline ecological data that exists to even monitor from. So in that 15-year time period, how much of that process included data collection, understanding the ecology, figuring out that you knew you needed to pull those owls so they wouldn't be affected by a brodificome or whatever it was. So like, a lot of it's social, but a lot of it's ecological too. And can you talk about that sort of dynamic? I'm a little bit hesitant <laughs> on answering that question. Uh, there's a lot of experts, yeah. honestly, on, on, on the field. Uh, so um, 
it, it is difficult for me how much uh, energy was invested on that. Yeah. What I can tell you is that I've seen my colleagues working on it, uh, not sleeping for years. Yeah. Yeah. So the 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 effort that teams make uh, to see a project like this happen, or a project, any project, that we really need uh, a lot of investment, uh, takes takes a lot of time. And for example, we have like uh, um, experts on, uh, on um, what's, can you remember me the, the um, Greg's whole uh, title, uh, expertise? Uh, toxic, toxicologist, thank you. Uh, you have toxicologists, yeah. you have veterinarians, uh, ecologists, ecologies, yeah. uh, environmental science, uh, and you also like I've like I can talk for hours about this, but um, something important uh, on this project was that we had a third party doing an environmental impact and social assessment. So it's not just the the nuclear group saying. Let's do this. It was someone else, a neutral party, that evaluated every single aspect of the project. And then that was explained to the community. And, and with that, you ensure that every single aspect of, of concern is addressed. And then, like, the mitigation plans. Mm -hmm. Hope I answer your question, but I can put you in contact with a bunch of them. I mean, <laughs> it's just an ongoing question of the gene governance space all over the world. So I'm, I was just curious as, if we took your example as a proxy, it, it just reminds us how much work there is yet to be done and how few of us are doing it. Um, but yes, it does. Thank you. And it also raises the concern because, like, there's a few of us uh, working in this, but it's also because of the funding. Yeah. Absolutely. So, because like if, if, if we were thrown millions of dollars from Elon Musk to do this, I'm sure we could do it. We would have some plans. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should call him. <laughs> well, uh, let's stop so we can call him. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but it is, we are at the hour, so I want to um, pause so people can move on to their next um, you know, meeting or whatever. Uh, but I do, I forgot to mention at the beginning that we're having lunch across the street at the Indian Buffet, so if you'd like to join, please come. We'll uh, cover it and